This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Richard Kirby joins us today from New York City. Richard is co-founder and general partner at Equal Ventures. Prior to Equal Ventures, Richard led seed and Series A investments for Venrock. He is also the founder of Stealth Mode, a community of more than 1,500 African-American founders, operators, and investors. Richard, great to chat again. Welcome to the show. Nick, thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, tell us about your background. You know, what was the story that took you to Venrock? Yeah. So, um, you know, grew up in New York originally, um, decided to go to Georgetown for undergrad and uh, coming out of there, my first job out of college was at Credit Suisse. And so joined the group there, uh, focused on investment banking. And about, I'd say, you know, a year into that, realized that I was less interested in the public markets and, and kind of, you know, making pitch books and, you know, modeling all day long. And so I thought, you know, let me try and think through what I prefer doing. And for me, I realized that I was passionate about, you know, technology as well as passionate about investing. And so I thought the best way to go and marry those two passions would be trying to find a path into venture capital. And so um, to kind of get there, as you know, and then well, someone who listens to the show, it's quite difficult to kind of find a career path into venture. Yes. And so what I did was I, uh, um, uh, you know, was keeping track of any company that was raising capital. And so when I saw a company that was raising capital, I thought was particularly interesting. I would try and figure out who the partner of that deal was at the fund and say, hey, you know, shoot them an email. So, hey, Nick, I see you invested in, you know, ABC company. We'll have to discuss the rationale behind that investment. And uh, I'd say 95% of the time, I got no responses. Uh, but occasionally, I got a couple, a couple of investors to say, um, hey, happy to chat for 15 or 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, one of those firms that responded was IVP, uh, Institutional Venture Partners. It's a later stage fund in the Bay Area. And, yeah, sure. uh, you know, yeah, you can think of them as writing, you know, call it $50 million investments into late-stage companies. That fund's gotten bigger, so I'm sure their check size is even larger now. Um, but, you know, I had a great time there and, uh, you know, was fortunate enough to work in our investments in companies like Dropbox and Fleetmatics and Shazam and Yex and a few others. That was a lot of fun. And uh, so that was my first foray into venture. And what that enabled me to do was realize that I was passionate about venture, you know, wanted to pursue it as a long-term career, but I was less excited about the later stages. And so for me... I wanted to go further earlier stage. And the, the reason for me there was wanting to get closer to founders. And that meant spending more time with them, getting to understand how they operate, learning from them, as well as always trying to find ways to be helpful to them. And so I thought that meant you know, going to earlier stage. And with that, went ahead and, and joined Venrock. And so as you suggested in my intro, Venrock uh, focuses on leading Series A's and seed investments for companies at the early stages. And uh, that's where our, the next of my career was. Awesome. Yeah, we just had uh, Samesh Dash on the program from IVP, and uh, he talked through a lot of awesome. Yeah, he's the man. He he rocks. He he definitely uh, was very candid and transparent, and uh, gave us a lot of um, the detail on you know how things work at IVP. Yeah, no, Samesh is awesome, and, and uh, was a, has been a great mentor of mine throughout my career from IVP and onward. And so um, I'm always enjoying my chats with Samesh. So Richard, why did 
you know, why leave uh, a great role at Venrock? I mean, you're leading seed Series A deals. You, you said you wanted to do early stage. You're doing it. Um, you, why do you lead to, to launch Equal? Yeah, I think a I think, um, couple of reasons. I think that the primary one is, though, um, you know, got the itch to go, you know, even earlier stage. You know, um, Venrock does do seed investments, but, you know, the vast majority of what they do is Series A and occasionally Series B investing. And so for me, it was wanting to kind of focus exclusively on leading and co-leading seed rounds. Um, and then, you know, being able to kind of, you know, find a partner that you trust and believe in and that you think, um, you know, have uh, a shared vision of how the world should look in venture and how one should approach the, the, the market. Um, and then I think as well, you know, anyone who's, you know, uh, more junior in a firm, you, you think you're probably, you know, better than you actually are and you want to go ahead and put your own shingle up and, and you think you can go do that. So um, some of that has to be in your head at some point or else you'd never go do that, I think. And, uh, and then, you know, also having the um, you know, belief that, uh, um, you know, LPs will, will resonate with you in your strategy and vision. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, the two Richards here, you know, Richard Kirby and, and Rick Zulo, of course, yeah. um, how did you guys come together? And then, you know, congrats on the close of, of fund one, you close 56 million, uh, just here in February, um, would like to hear a bit about, you know, the thesis and how you guys different. Yeah, sure. So Rick and I met, uh, I want to say it's about like six years ago via another investor that we knew, um, who thought that, you know, we'd probably get along and, and have a lot of things in common. And so met several, several years ago. And then, you know, up until equal had spent most of our interactions, you know, just trading notes on, you know, a number of deals that we're looking at together and trying to find opportunities to work together and kind of, you know, see how the other person thinks. Um, and yeah, as you mentioned, we, you know, folks fortunately that culminated in us raising the $56 million fund, um, that we announced in February, but actually had closed the capital previously. Um, as we kind of think about equal, we focus on leading and co-leading seed rounds. So for us, that means we're generally investing on average a million and a half dollars into a two to $4 million seed round. Uh, and we focus on investing in startups that are deploying technology into legacy markets. And, you know, we think historically, Venture was about investing in the development of technology. So, you know, the building blocks of tech infrastructure, where that was cloud computing, open source software, uh, the advent of APIs. And when evaluating, you know, technology in the development stage, I think it's really, really important to underwrite the ability for the technical team to build, you know, the technical components of that particular product. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in the deployment of technology, we think it's, you know, taking all those building blocks and employing them into uh, you know, any sector or category that has not yet become tech enabled. And in that scenario, it's less about understanding if the team can build a technically complex problem or product and more about understanding their, how, how they understand their category, their sector, the pain points of their category and why their solution is uniquely positioned to solve that pain point. And so it's much more understanding the team's knowledge of the market rather than their knowledge of how to technically go build a product. Got it. Good. So you you guys are more on on the the tech tech enabled side of things. Then you look for established sectors that have building blocks in place, and then people, uh, you know, employing tech enabled solutions to deploy those building blocks in a more effective way. Yeah, I think that's right. So for us, we look at you know established categories. You know, to name a couple examples, you know, insurance, logistics, retail, childcare, and the elder care market are some categories we've spent you know more time than others recently. And for us, those are categories that we might call antiquated, but um, they also are very, very large categories where we think technology has yet to make them you know, more efficient. And so when we come across founders that are taking that approach, hey, I see this great opportunity in category, 
um, you know, things function quite well in this market. But if I can increase efficiency, both the incumbents can gain value from it. And so can I. And so that's, you know, a pitch that really resonates well with us. Is that the common thread then across those those different sectors that you guys focus on? I I mean, you know, I see on paper care economy, supply chain, insurance, you know, some retail. Um, those seem disconnected to me, but it sounds like there is a common thread, which, you know, those are legacy industries that have not had sort of the uh, technology, their own technology sort of revolution. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, we think there are many categories that are worth pursuing through our lens of legacy markets. Um, those I mentioned are a few of the initial sectors where we've kind of piqued our interest, where we spent time in the first, you know, call it year of the fund. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, the common thread amongst all those is that they're, you know, very um, older categories, established markets, large categories that have been largely untapped by technology. Um, I think, you know, we could probably rattle off between the two of us that are 10 or 20 categories that fit that mold. Yep. Uh, we just haven't spent as much time in those categories yet, but I'm sure we'll sort of tackle more categories in the future of the firm. So you just closed the fund, right? $56 million. Um, I was out in New York City a little over a month ago, uh, had a chance to chat with you about it. Uh, congrats again. Mm-hmm. And thanks for you know hosting Thank a you. really valuable event. Um, and it was an, an event where we talked about many of the issues of you know how do you raise capital? How do you uh, launch an emerging fund? Um, I'd like to hear from you like very specifically, what's, what's the best tactical advice that you would give to someone who's raising a fund? Yeah, um, as as you heard that 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 event, it's very very challenging raising a first time fund for anyone, no matter what your experience or background may be. And so I think um, there aren't enough best practices shared. And so I was glad that we can share them in an environment in a, in a you know, private setting. But here as well, I think um, the most important thing to think about when raising a fund is to target investors that are a fit for your strategy, and be sure to ask LPs upfront what they're looking for, so you can get a sense of if this would be a fit for you or a waste of your time. Because um, you know, for us, we definitely spent a lot of time and waste a lot of time with LPs that were never going to invest in our fund because they either don't invest in first-time funds, don't want to invest in a fund that's based in New York, don't like seed. I mean, there are a million <laughs> reasons for an LP to say no. Um, but you know, like uh, investors on the venture side, we want to see what's in the market, right? And, and so, you know, you may take some meetings with folks that you. Um, you know, want to learn about the category, but you know, it's still not a fit for you. And so it's super important as we tell our founders to qualify investors before talking to them. You know, I think, um, you know, that's super important for anyone who's raising a first time fund to do that too. And, and we definitely struggled with that when we were first coming out of the gate because, you know, it's hard to raise a fund. You're trying to find capital wherever you can find it. And so you're like, you know, I'll go talk to Nick. I'll talk to anyone to kind of see if I can get a check. But um, oftentimes, (laughs) (laughs) exactly, exactly. But oftentimes that that can be a waste of time. And so um, in a world where it's already hard enough, it it don't make any harder than something it needs to be. Why do you think LPs, you know, spend their time on funds that they're never going to deploy capital in? Yeah, I think think LPs want to see what's evolving in the market. And so, um, you know, I think um, LPs generally have like buckets, right? You've got a, a late stage, but I guess, sorry, you're higher up. You have, you know, private equity as a whole as a bucket. Yeah. Amongst that, you've got your PE firms, your venture. Um, amongst venture, you have, you know, late stage, you've got, um, you know, it's called mid stage at the series B area. And early might be series A and maybe some seed for you. And so, um, you know, as an LP, you might not have a pre-seed bucket. But you know it's a new kind of asset class within venture, and so you want to kind of explore what that means, and you want to be you know talking to the, the GPs, those funds who are starting these pre-seed funds, because 
um, it may be a category you want to invest in the future. And building a relationship with, let's say, Nick right now, hopefully gives you a leg up when you're ready to make that commitment to that, that fund, as opposed to it being you know, a shotgun wedding. You're meeting Nick for the first time. He's on fund three. And you're trying to kind of make a decision in a, in a tight time frame. Right, right. I, just out of curiosity, is that something you usually vet for at meeting one? So you get on a call with an LP and start asking some questions about their preference for, you know, do you invest in emerging managers? Do you invest in, you know, two GP funds, for instance, you and Rick? Um, do you invest in seed seed stage focus funds? Or is that something you tried to pre-qualify, you know, even prior to taking them? I'd say it's a mix of both for us. Um, on the first dimension, we definitely try and pre-qualify before meeting. And so usually when we're uh, meeting with an LP, it's via some introduction. And so we'll say, hey... Uh, you know, Nick, let's say, uh, should we go ahead and mute this guy? You know, what what seed funds is he in? Has he invested in any seed fund ever? Has she um, liked funds based in New York and all those things in advance? And so hopefully, you know, our, our introduction can kind of get checked out those boxes off for us. But once we're in the meeting, we definitely are asking um, a few questions up front. And usually we spend the first five minutes of meeting with LP really understanding their motivation. And so some of the things that we might ask them are, you know, broad questions like, how do you think about venture? Um, and then if they start talking about a lot of funds that don't sound anything like your fund, chances are uh, they probably aren't going to move in a timely manner to invest in your particular fund. Um, you know, if um, they've uh, been deploying lots of capital into seed stage and they can list also like, you know, 15 or 20 funds they're in, they need to be full. You know, you don't know what the allocation or budget is for any particular LP. So you want to ask, you know, how, what's their target, you know, collective ownership within venture, within seed itself that they're targeting to see if there's actually room for you in that capacity. Um, and so some of those, those are some of the questions that we ask. And then lastly, we ask, you know, what are the managers that you're actually in so that we can get a sense of, you know, is there a fit for us in your portfolio? And then more importantly, who are the GPs we should go ask about you? Because, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're also admitting LPs that um, we think are going to be good partners to us. And so if they are in our, our friends' funds, we can go and ask them and say, hey, what do you think about you know, so-and-so as LP? You know, are they helpful? Are they friendly? All these other things that you want to try and figure out. <laughs> did, uh, did any LPs ask, and of course, we don't have to get into specific folks, but did any LPs ask for special privi- privileges, you know, part of the management company, part of the GP uh, custom carry, you know, for them specifically, maybe tied to like a large anchor check. Um, did you get any of that? Yeah, we did get that. Um, we got that uh, fairly early on in our process. You know, there was a, a potential LP that wanted to put a meaningful size check and with that, you know, get um, preferential treatment on our carry and a potential reduction in their fees. Uh, and we, we thought about it, you know, we thought, you know, it is a big check. Fundraising is hard. This could maybe catapult us to, you know, finish our fundraise much faster. Um, and so what we did there before, you know, making any real decision was talking to folks that we knew that had done before. And so we talked to GPs, got their opinion. And then we talked to um, actually other prospective LPs that we were going to pitch down the road or hadn't pitching to kind of get their sense of, hey, if a manager took a deal like this and then came to you, you know, does that change your, your viewpoints on them as a manager and does that increase, decrease, or makes no change in your ability to go ahead and invest alongside them? Ah, good. And, um, yeah. And, you know, I'd say for the vast majority of folks that we asked in the LP side, their answer was uh, it would make them less likely to invest. Uh, and so that ultimately led us to say, we shouldn't take this deal. We should continue on the you know, 
potentially harder track of you know plugging away, trying to get everyone to agree on the same terms without anyone getting preferential treatment. And that's what we ultimately did. But um, you know, it definitely can be enticing when, um, particularly let's say if you're, you've been out fundraising for a year, you're struggling to make progress, let's say, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and this could be a really a real jolt to your fundraise. I, I can see it being very enticing as well. It's enticing. Yep, for sure. Um, what's maybe the biggest mistake that you made during the raise process that uh, you'd call out to prospective fund managers that you know they could avoid making themselves? Um, yeah, I think it was what we just walked through, which is you know pre-qualify and qualifying that first meeting, uh, and, and that's really going to be a lifesaver for you because there's endless amounts of you know people who are wealthy individuals, endless amounts of family offices, you know, plenty of institutions, but um, you know who's the right one for you and your team and your strategy is is quite important. Uh, and then I guess the other piece of advice I'd add there too is. Um, be persistent because uh, LPs will definitely go ghost on you. Um, and that sometimes that means they don't want to talk to you and they think you're, you're not aligned with them or you're, you're, your pitch is not differentiated or they don't believe in you. Uh, but sometimes it means they're busy. And, and so, that's, so that's the case. If you can be persistent, share updates with LPs throughout your fundraising process, whether it's new investments, a markup on a company in your portfolio, or just you know, progress in your fundraise. Um, because all of that can keep you know them engaged. They see that you're hungry, that you're making progress, that your fund is not on paper anymore, but it's a real entity, a real fund, um, and that allows them to kind of get to conviction on their end. And so there were you know LPs that are now in our fund that you know I had emailed three times over three months and got no responses, and the fourth time got a response. They began to reengage, and then they eventually closed. And so I think that persistence is important. Uh, and the other thing I'd say too is that. Um, I think managers tend to make a mistake on and generally first time managers do is uh, waiting too long to do a first close um, because, you know, the, the first close enables you to start making investments and then start to prove out what you, your strategy is. Yep. And that cool can give, you know, the potential LP a body of work to say, okay, I know what equal is now. I get it. It was hard to tell via the, 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 the PowerPoint, the pitch, but now I'm starting to see the deals they're getting into who are the co-investors that you know are, are, are confident co-investing alongside Equal? If you get a markup in that capacity, it's great too. And who are the funds that want to invest beyond them? And all those things are very, very important factors in getting um, NLP to commit, just as it might be for a, uh, uh, a GP to invest in a founder. Um, seeing those progress after me that, that founder for the first time really gets folks to you know get to conviction when they might have otherwise. Yeah, it's so funny and, and a bit strange when, you know, you're managing your your CRM of LP targets and you're trying to keep updates of like conversion rates. Like, all right, this one feels like it's 5% or 10% because I haven't heard from them in, you know, two months. And then all of a sudden, these these targets that you think are super low potential, they re-engage. And, and yeah. I think you're exactly right. People get busy. People get distracted. We all go through ebbs and flows. And uh, it may not necessarily be a reflection of uh, their likelihood that they'll invest. It could just be timing. Yeah, I think the I'll, I'll give the answer the other way too, which is that um, the the folks that you think are ninety five percent in can be zero percent in too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we we definitely had those. I mean, we're, we're not different from other managers where there's you know folks that um, you got folks who you know commit verbally that don't end up closing. People who commit, you know, via email who don't end up closing. Yeah. 
And, and so you got folks that you think are at the finish line that don't make it. And then you got folks that you think are, you know, 2% chances that end up becoming uh, meaningful LPs too. And so it's, um, I, I won't call it a crapshoot, but it, it's, it's, you know, really hard to pinpoint where each LP is on your kind of called sales pipeline. And the, the qualification phase is, is, you know, pretty subjective. At, at what level did you do a first close? So we did a first close at, I want to say nine or 10 million bucks. Something like oh, that. wow. Okay. That's great. Yeah, and then we, we made a, yeah, we made a first investment, um, shortly thereafter. Uh, and then that fortunately for us, that, that first investment was marked up, uh, pretty quickly by a, um, a fund that's well-respected by LPs. And so once again, trying to show, uh, future LPs, a couple proof points and that get folks, you know, um, more excited. I think, you know, when, when folks, uh, are thinking about investing at the early stage, that stage being seed stage, they may also be really interested in getting in these larger brand name funds that we all know the names of. And, um, those funds are probably very successful and they have their pick of the litter of who they can have as LPs. And so it may be hard for you as a new LP to get exposure to that fund. But if you're seeing a early stage manager invest in a company and those companies consistently can hopefully get uh, marked up or get follow investment from those funds that you want to get into, that's like a backdoor way for that LP to have exposure in a very, very small way, but nonetheless um, exposure to the kind of, you know, um, more brand name asset class investment that they want to get to. Interesting. So everyone's favorite topic right now, COVID-19, we, we have to, we have to talk about it a bit here. So we're, we're over a month into sort of this, this crisis breaking and, and the pandemic. Um, you guys are early in your fund cycle, right? Multiple years of initial check deployment in front of you. Has the deployment strategy changed at all, given the, uh, the environment? Where- yeah, I would, I would say it uh, hasn't changed yet for us. I think, you know, we, we're definitely in, uh, you know, different times today, but it, we're still pretty new into those times. And so I think we're all still evaluating what that means for us going forward. So, you know, generally we're targeting four to six investments per year as a firm. So our deployment pace is fairly deliberate to begin with. And so we don't anticipate that change to occur with this current environment. You know, we know great companies are built in bull and bear markets. And with that said, um, you know, we do four to six investments a year. It doesn't mean we're going to do one every single quarter. Maybe it means Q2 is slow. And then we see it ramp up in Q3 and Q4. But sure. I think in general for us, we're still kind of tra- aiming to hit that four to six investments per year. We've done uh, two so far in 2020. So, you know, we're pretty much on pace and um, our plan is to continue that. But not to continue just because we want to, but continue because we think there are going to be opportunities out there that we want to get uh, invested in and be very excited to do so. Um, but, you know, if, if things change and we see, man, we're just not seeing really high quality deal flow that, that we think is uh, a reflection of the deals we want to be in. Uh, we are not pressured by any means to kind of you know, ramp up our pace, continue our pace in that capacity. So four to six, or was it four to eight deals a year? Four to six. Four to six. Four to six, yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's two to three per partner, right? You and Rick. Mm-hmm. Um, are you guys each running your own deal flow and then sort of coming together at, at the decision point to talk about them? And is it is it fairly democratic or unanimous? Or are you both kind of looking at deals at the same time at every stage of the funnel? And you know, how do you guys collaborate as a team? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say it's a mix of both. Um, you know, um, early on though, that we we are you know doing in meetings with, with the founder together, uh, but it may not necessarily always be at that first meeting. Obviously, um, you want to make sure you can gain efficiencies, and so if we're meeting the founder in the first meeting every single time, 
you're probably not being as efficient with, you know, one time as you can be, but you know, it's rare that we'll have, you know, three meetings in a row with a founder as just one of us. Um, and so we involve the other person, you know, pretty fairly on quickly into the process because we know that, um, you know, venture is a competitive game. And if you, if you don't have enough seats on the table that are getting exposed to a deal, it's going to be hard for you to move in a timely fashion to win the opportunity that's in front of you. And so we, we collaborate very closely on opportunities together. Obviously, there's always a point person on a particular deal, but um, we want to make it so that, um, you know, God forbid something happens to me that Rick knows exactly what's going on with all the companies I'm point on and could just like, be re- I could be replaced like that, like very, very sim- seamlessly. And that's the kind of relationship that we're hoping to having as a, as a firm so that, you know, our founders can think of it as not a rich or Rick deal, but an equal deal. And so they can get exposure to the entire partnership and know that, you know, there's um, areas where I can be helpful where Rick can't and vice versa. And so you're not just getting one person, but you're getting the entirety of the firm, hopefully. And, and because of the, the lean nature of our team, that's, that's easiest for us to do because there aren't that many faces for the founder to remember. Uh, not that many emails for an ember, not even that many names. I and mean, we both have the same first name. So yeah. uh, it's uh, pretty simple for the founders in that capacity. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I've been there. We've got a team of eight at the moment and uh, we all work on deals. And so uh, sometimes sometimes I feel for the founders, their head could be spinning with you know the range of different new stack people that they're interacting with. So we might have to tighten that up. But um, Um, You know, Richard, I've been seeing like a lot of investors talk now and tweet about raising the bar, adjusting process, getting much more selective with investments uh, due to, you know, this pandemic and and the recession. Uh, Are you guys raising the bar at equal? Yes. And I'll give you my answer. I'm sure Rick might have a different answer here on this one. But, uh, you know, my, my belief is that the bar should always be high for any investor. So I don't personally believe in the need need to raise the bar. But I do think that bear markets allow for more time due diligence on investments. And so I think it's actually a positive for both founders and investors. On the investor side, we get to better understand a business. So we spend more time understanding their category, their approach, and the, the team itself. And I think the founder gets more time to understand if you know this investor is a good fit for them for their team, for their business, and can be helpful. And so I think the extension of the time to complete a deal might get longer. But I don't necessarily think that the bar... Um, you know, should be raised. Now, if, if there are, if you're a firm and you've got, you know, um, I'd say, uh, you know, different size deal structures and different mandates for that, I understand why you might need to, you know, raise the bar there. So let's say I'm a multi-stage firm. And for me, um, you know, uh, on a seed deal, I only need to see two of my partners need to see the deal rather than all five of us. Uh, you might want to elevate that to be all five, given the environment going forward. I get that. But here at Equal... You know, we generally are writing the same size check, targeting the same size ownership in every single deal. And so um, there isn't much room, room for us to kind of, you know, adjust the bar up and down at any given time frame. Right. I mean, if if you're investing and you're a professional in the business, you should have conviction in everything you're investing in, right? Regardless of circumstances. Now, circumstances might change certain criteria that have to be evaluated, of course, uh, but the bar and the level of conviction... I, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think that that should change. Everyone should be 100% all in before they cut a check. Um, otherwise, you're just getting off on the wrong foot in the relationship with the founders if you're not. Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, you know every, every firm and every individual investor has their own lens that they use to evaluate a, a deal. And so my guess is even in the recession period, that lens won't change very much for any individual. 
But what might change is the categories that they get excited about. And so maybe now as a result of COVID, there are some sectors that you know, you're like, I can't touch that sector right now. This is just not for me. And there may be other sectors where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm more enamored by this now. I can see the, the viability in this category. I think that's where we'll see more change rather than, let's say, having to raise the bar or change your investment lens or investment criteria. Yeah. So speaking of investment lens and criteria, like we all have different things we look for, different must have, different nice to haves. Um, And there there are two very distinct philosophies in this business. There's kind of the team philosophy. There's the market philosophy. Uh, I think a lot of us like to say that we we invest in both. But um, you know, you've got your your Don Valentines and your Mark Andreessen's out there that prioritize market over everything, right? They they opine on the importance of market size when making investments. Uh, and then you've got like uh, I was reading Jason Lemkin, and this is a very loose paraphrase, but he said something to the effect of "Show me a clear path to four million of ARR, and I can show you a path to a hundred million ARR." Um, so uh, you know, he in in another way, I I read that as you know, if you can develop a strong beachhead in a strong position within a sector, there should be a lot more opportunities that that you can go after from from that launch point. Um, so you know, what's your take on market size? Uh, and you know, how do you even estimate an accurate market size in many categories that have not even been created yet, you know, at the, the early seed stage that you're investing? Yeah. And I think, um, market sizing is actually a quite difficult thing to do correctly. I think it's really hard to accurately say, you know, this market is a $10 billion market, hundred billion dollar market, um, for any given category. And I think more specifically the future market size that's many years out um, is also easy hard to predict. And, and I think that's really important because when you think about getting liquidity or an exiting an investment um, at the seed stage, you're not doing it anytime soon. You're doing it you know, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years out from that, that initial investment. And so what you really want to know is what's that market going to look like a decade from now? Um, and that's really hard to do. And I think what happens there is that because it's so hard, people aren't necessarily doing that. And I think people are overestimating you know, the market size of an opportunity today and underestimating the market growth or miscategorizing a company's you know, true market potential um, when they're making that evaluation in that, in that building process. You know, if you looked at Uber and tried to evaluate the size of the black car market, you would likely pass on making that investment because that black <laughs> car market isn't that large. Mark um, similarly, said when he was know, on. If you tried he to passed. evaluate the number... <laughs> there you go. And, and when I was at IVP, we, we did too. And, and um, I can get, get to that at some point in time. But you know, similarly, if you try to evaluate the number of people willing to allow someone to stay in their homes or not people willing to stay in someone else's home, you would have passed on Airbnb because you, you couldn't do the math to make it work that this could be a large opportunity if you think of it from that lens. And so I think um, a lot of investment gets over, over indexed on market size. Uh, and under index on market growth or future market dynamics, uh, because those are really, really hard to predict, but that ultimately will lead you to understand what will happen to a particular category and how that will impact your, your business that you're looking to invest in. Do you attempt to estimate that? Uh, we definitely tried to do it. Um, but I think, you know, I think I would actually say my partner Rick is better at doing that than I am from a, you know, market analysis standpoint. But I, I think at the end of the day, what we're trying to think through is, um, it's more around less around size and more about the dynamics of the market. So if you think a market will become and look like X, Y, or Z, are you building the product for that end goal 
rather than today's market. And we're looking for folks to build for, you know, it's, you know, it's like Wayne Gretzky quote of, you know, you skate to where the puck's going to be. Just uh, you know, we're hoping that, exactly, there you go. We're hoping <laughs> that, you know, the, the company's building their product for that future end state. Because clearly, if you, if you, you know, even when you were, when you talked to Travis back then, when we were at IDP, you know, he was raising the Series B when we talked to him. He was clearly skating where the puck was going. You know, his viewpoint is, I'm going to have everyone be a driver, right? Not these, not just black bars only. Um, but you have to then believe that too. Right. And it's a leap to make that point in time. And if you're not sticking that lens, it's really, it's really going to be difficult for you to get conviction on the market opportunity in that capacity. And so I think it's, I think people make a lot of mistakes when trying to evaluate market and then over indexing on the market as a reason to say yes or no on investment. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex Corporate Card for Startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee, and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group, or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So do you lean on the founders then to help you understand, you know, where the puck is going and how a market will evolve? Or are you and Rick doing your own market scenario planning and saying, you know, for the care economy or for supply chain or for retail, um, you know, here's how we think this market may evolve over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, it's a mix of both. And, and we, we like it to be like a, a healthy back and forth between the founder and, and us as a team, because, you know, we have our opinion. We've done research in your space beforehand we think you know the market will look like x y or z um but also as a founder you're doing it day in and day out and so you should have a more intimate viewpoint on the opportunity and our viewpoint is okay on day one are we aligned if we're aligned you know pretty good that's a good spot to be but if we're not we want to understand you know where we're wrong where you're right or vice versa and that means do more homework on our end or it means i should say and it means talking to folks in our networks that we know that category better than we do and so we're trying to validate these hypotheses with, you know, the actual incumbents, the executives at the larger companies in that category to get their viewpoints on where they think the market's going to help us understand if we should be, you know, making an investment in a company that, that we think has the right vision for the future. And so um, it's always a mix of us doing our own work, 
as well as working with the founders to understand how they think the market's going to evolve. Because um, if you can get right how the market will evolve, um, that's where you can really you know get some great returns for your LPs and your founders and everyone involved. Yep. Yep. So while we're talking about scenario planning uh, and contingency planning, you guys published this framework for COVID-19 on Medium. Uh, It was sort of a tool and a framework for startups, right? How how should startups respond to uh, the impending crisis and and the recession uh, across different scenarios? So can you can you give us kind of the broad strokes on on the framework? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the broad strokes for us was. you know, for the, for this scenario of COVID nineteen, it's generally for our founders them being very early stage, the first time that they're ever experiencing um, you know in, in a recession or just like you know a destruction of their category. And so, um, you know, I think it's easy for a founder to say, "Hey, all right, let me go find my game plan." But in reality, there shouldn't be a game plan. There should be options involved, and because you have no idea what's coming next, you don't know if COVID nineteen is a one week blip, one month, one year, six months. And so our viewpoint there was let's think with our founders together and figure out, you know, how would you, you know, plan your business based on a variety of scenarios of how this recession will impact your business. And so it's really meant to be a forward-looking exercise to discuss the impacts of the crisis, you know, today, uh, in the future, and in a variety of different scenarios. And so, um, and they were meant to be, be seen as both categorical. So, you know, what's the impact on your sector across these different dimensions and the different scenarios? as well as what does that impact mean to your business from a hiring revenue burn perspective. And if you can lay out them in like, you know, a, a um, you know, scenario planning of three to four or five scenarios, it's, you can make a much more clear path forward for you and your company. You know, it's easy. I think for anyone when, you know, time like this come about to operate from a place of fear because, you know, your hair's on fire. Maybe you're running out of cash. You're planning to raise in three months. And now that plan is, is gone. And instead of like, you know, having your hair on fire, take a deep breath, relax. Think about the various scenarios here. Ask for advice, whether it be your investors, your 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 employees, your advisors, even family and friends, because that will help you kind of calm things down, realize that you know the world's not ending and there's actually a viable path for you here going forward. And you just gotta think where that path might be. And it can be different for every company. So is it if I'm the founder of my I'm managing my cash cash position, of course. I'm I'm seeing how uh, this environment is affecting uh, top line, bottom line, a uh, variety of different factors. And then you've kind of got uh, a matrix of sorts so that the founder can say, oh, if, you know, cash position drops here, then I mm-hmm. should be doing X, X and Y. Yeah, it's definitely a matrix of sorts. So we got, you know, um, you can think of it as like an Excel table with, um, you know, three columns over the top, each, um, you know, different impacts. And so, you know, a one to two month shutdown, a two to four month shutdown, a, you know, six to 12 month shutdown. And what's that impact on your revenue, your runway, headcounts, you know, operations total, and then the higher level impacts on your sector um, and, you know, the necessary steps that must be taken based on those scenarios. Does that mean that fundraising gets pushed out further? Does that mean we need to have a hiring freeze? Does that mean that we need to lay off people, unfortunately? And, um, and then, you know, what are the longer term impacts for the sector? And so is your sector negatively impaired for a decade? Um, does this actually improve your sector? Actually, you know, we're using Zoom right here, right? So does this improve the category and the viability of your business? It could perhaps. And, and or maybe it's a neutral impact for your company and it's more of like a, a temporary blip. 
all those things are put in one um, you know easy format. That way, it's easy for you to kind of understand what you need to worry about and what you don't have to, and easy for you to kind of share that with folks that you want their opinion on because it's too it's too hard for someone to come in blind and give you feedback on your business when um, everything is scattered around. So, Richard, diversity in venture is terrible. Uh, you know, I was I was speaking with uh, Frederick Gross at. He, he's at Storm Ventures professionally. He has also launched Black VC. And we were talking through some of his efforts and some of their initiatives a few months ago. Um, I know that you're involved and uh, have been a founder uh, with Stealth Mode. Um, tell, tell me and in, in the audience a bit about how you're, pri- how you're trying to improve diversity uh, via this effort. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. You know, diversity in venture and tech broadly is uh, abysmal, to put a word to it, I guess. And, um, you know, fortunately, there are a number of people and initiatives looking to improve on the lack of diversity in, in venture and tech broadly. Um, you mentioned, obviously, Frederick and, and Black VC. They did a great job trying to promote um, the African-Americans within the venture capital community with mentorship, you know, access to opportunities and so forth, which is fantastic. And, and there are a couple others as well that um, you know, I work with or I know about as well. You know, you mentioned Stealth Mode is that I co-founded with um, Charles Hudson, and it's a you know a community for African Americans in tech. So across the Bay Area, in New York, we have over fifteen hundred members that are comprised of African American founders, operators, investors, and you know, every functional area of a, of a tech company and the venture capital industry. And you can think of it as like an offline and online community that you know uh, possesses mechanisms to enhance everyone's um, ability for more access to the community. Um, asking questions, hiring, raising capital, anything that we would need to support an ecosystem is involved within stealth mode in itself. Uh, but there are other things that um, other programs and issues I've seen that work quite well as well. And so there's also um, Hadia Mujid runs a program called HBCU.VC. So it's a fellowship for students at HBCUs that trains and educates them in the world of venture capital. Uh, on the you know female front, there's All Raise, which promotes women in venture and in tech broadly. And I guess the last answer that's probably worth mentioning is one of our LPs, Malcolm Robinson, runs a program where he educates students across HBCUs across the country about the career path of venture and then places them as interns at venture funds over the summer. Um, and Eagle Ventures participates in that as well. And so we've got an intern um, you know, that's going to join us, uh, I guess, probably June or July. Looks like it might be more remote than in person, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've got two, uh, actually four interns right now, a couple MBAs and a couple undergrads, and um, it's very different and creative doing this remote onboarding. And I've never even met two of these folks in person ever, <laughs> only over yeah. Zoom. You know, it's it's interesting too because we um, made our first hire of someone that we've never met before at Equal, and so we you know we started this kind of like you know hiring process in I guess it must have been like February. Um, obviously it takes a long time to find someone that you want to bring on for a full-time position and end up, you know, kind of culminating, uh, a week or two ago. And we're like, man, we just hired someone we've never met before. And so it's definitely a new experience for us, but, um, depending on how long, you know, state of goes on in place, how long COVID is an issue for, you know, we may have to also think about, you know, investing in founders you've never met before. And so yeah. that's a new experience for, for many investors, definitely us here at Equal. Um, and so we're trying to think through, you know, what are the ways in which you can evaluate that? Because, um, you know, it's easier to kind of mask uh, deficiencies via phone, not as hard via video, but still possible. In person, it's really hard to do. And so that's why that, that in-person touch is always important for us. But um, if we have to, we'll find ways to do without it. 
Yeah. What are what are some ideas for that? Right. You're um, there's there's a few different layers here. There's a variety of things that you're trying to evaluate professionally and on, on the business front when you're meeting with founders, and it it certainly helps to be in person and to gauge body language and eye contact and things of that nature. And then there's this whole other component, which is you know the intangibles and breaking through the wall of investor founder and just trying to socialize a bit maybe you have dinner with the founders before you invest uh, maybe you create um you know more um, um more of a partnership that way and a collaboration you get to know them as people that's going to be very different i i won't claim that it's harder but it's definitely going to be a lot different over zoom um i heard uh Gosh, I can't remember the investor, but an investor yesterday mentioned that he did a uh, he did like a yoga class or something with a founder <laughs> for forty five minutes to just just to try to figure out a way to connect on a different level. So I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts or ideas for you know how you're going to be able to get to conviction and make decisions without meeting people in person? Yeah, I mean, we don't have the right answer for yet for sure. I think we've kind of come to the conclusion on our end is is just more more sessions, and so you know you want to spend more time on video than you do in person, and um, also making sure that you can meet more of the team. You know, people can give you a virtual tour of their office. You know, I know that you and I are both um, big college basketball fans, and yep. you know this this COVID nineteen you know came down and also not only destroyed March Madness but destroyed the recruitment for high school athletes going to colleges. And so now, you know, we've seen, you know, high school students getting virtual tours of the the athletic stadium, the gym, the lockers room and so forth. Well, we'll probably need to do some of that too, you know, a virtual tour of the, the team, the office, making sure a team actually exists, an office actually exists somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it's just going to be more and more sessions to get more comfortable with somebody rather than you, you could in, in an in-person session. Or if like, you know, someone is three blocks from your office in New York to be able to walk over. Those things are, are hard to do in, in a scenario where we're all in, in our homes. And so our viewpoint is it, it'll be trial by error and we're, we're prepared to go try. Yeah. One of our internal metrics here is to try and get faster and faster uh, with making decisions and getting answers to founders. You know, we're, we're trying to get better mm -hmm. at that and to not string these things along, along longer. And of course, this is working against that. So I'm, I'm having to tell founders, you know, <laughs> we want to be quicker, but we're probably going to be slower now because it's, it's just going to take more meetings and more time. And we can't get that same level of uh, comfort without more touch points. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, on the founder side, what could be helpful on their end is just, you know, uh, having more prepared. Um, and so if you've got, you know, more, whether it's your deck, your, um, if you are, you know, actually in market financials, all these things, but if you just got more detail on your business, on your market, um, you know, the investor is going to make an investment memo on you. And so um, the more you can help that person fill out their, their memo, the, the higher likely they're going to get the conviction, also the higher likely they're going to do it faster in a time that you prefer. And so I think, you know, this time period may allow founders to think more about their business themselves and actually be better at pitching their business because it's going to be hard to, to convey it via video. You know, when I was at um, Venrock, you know, we had offices in uh, Palo Alto, New York, and in Boston. And so at any given time, a founder was pitching to two other offices over video. Oh, interesting. And we had there what we called, yeah, we had there what we called the, the video discount because in invariably, you know, whoever was in the room with the founder thought the founder did a great job. 
whoever was on video was like, no, I don't know that that Nick guy didn't come across you know, <laughs> compelling to me. You know, he, he didn't really answer the question on you know market size or you know go to market or might be. And, and so it's really hard to you know um, jump to the screen and get someone excited by something via video as it is in person when they can see your excitement and passion for it. And, and that's something that you know, we have to get used to. That's super interesting, though, that the uh, the video call investors were more bearish than the uh, in-person. That's really good to know. Huh. Yeah. I guess if you get a super right. positive sign over video, then that's that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I think fortunately for us, um, you know, it is over video right now, but we're, we're all in video together. And so it's a level playing field rather than having someone in person and over video. And so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Richard, if we could cover any, any topic here on the program, what topic do you think we should address and who would you like to hear speak about it? Um, yeah, yeah, I think one person would be great to have on. I'm not sure who's been on because I know you've done a lot of podcasts now. I haven't been able to catch up to all of them, Nick, but um, I would say Brian Roberts um, from Venron. I think you know healthcare is increasingly becoming a focus area for founders and investors. Um, it's very, very complicated, heavily regulated industry. I think Brian has you know, very unique and opinionated insights and viewpoints on the sector and investing in the sector. I think people would, be- I think more people would benefit from hearing his viewpoints about healthcare, how to invest at the early stages, and so forth. He's also incubated business before, and so he's just got a, like a breadth of knowledge across a variety of aspects within venture, healthcare, and investing that I think uh, people would benefit from hearing his stories. Love it. Yeah, we've had Brian Asher, but not Brian Roberts, so uh, we'll have to do that. Uh, Richard, what's one thing you know you need to get better at? Uh, everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely thankful for the experiences that I've gotten in my venture career. But I think I'm a long way from from being you know any semblance of perfect. And I think there are plenty of things to work on. And my my hope is to continue working on getting better in every facet throughout my career. And so, um, you know, everyone's got their superpowers, but I'm trying to find some ways to get more superpowers. And then finally, uh, Richard, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah. So uh, on Twitter, you can find me at, at Kirby, that's a, uh, at K-E-R-B-Y, um, or, or via email. Um, you know, we, we easily share our email. It's just Kirby at equal.vc. And so um, I'm fine having my inbox become inundated as well. Richard, always a pleasure. Congrats again on the fund. Um, for you and me both, I'm hoping that this pandemic uh, finishes up so that we can get back to our jobs and get back to college basketball. I couldn't agree more, Nick. And thanks again <laughs> for having me on. All right. Take care. <laughs> That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.